Hey ladies, welcome to WTF, Women Talking Frankly, a running conversation with your hosts, Kyle and Candace. And you, about issues facing women, such as health, hormones, our looks, our libido, life, and anything in between. We promise to dig deep and get into it each episode. Welcome. We're so glad you joined us today. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Candace. How are you? I'm fine. I'm over here in the UK still, leaving, le- leading a double life. And uh, you're in Oregon. Are you a double agent? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I just watched, I think I, I, I sent you a little note. I was in, I live near this tiny little village that's out of the past and walked down there the other day and saw two red foxes chasing each other along the riverbank and, um, and then walked down to the Thames and went into this tiny post office and got this woman all muddled because I had to send something to the U.S. So I'm, I'm relishing it. It's the, this is the land of the eccentrics and, um, not, and, and, to, and because I've been living here, I've had this, um, overwhelming curiosity to find out more about what women are going through, of course, how they cope with menopause over here, since that's our big topic. And I told you, I wanted to find somebody who could enlighten us a little bit more than, um, what I can pick up just sort of nosing around. Um, So I happily listened to a great podcast called The Happy Menopause. And I had the um, temerity to actually there was a phone number there. And I just called that number and introduced myself to Jackie Lynch, who is an award winning nutritionist and author, and the founder of the Well, Well, Well Nutrition Clinic where she specializes in women's health and the menopause. So um, she has written books. Uh, Her latest book is The Happy Menopause, Smart Nutrition to Help You Flourish, published in 2020 by Watkins. It was highly commended in the 2021 Health and Wellbeing Awards for the Wellbeing Book Category. That's interesting that there's a Wellbeing Book Category. We need that. that. Love that. (laughs) How positive. Yeah. Jackie is also the author of Vava Voom, The 10-Day Energy Diet, and The Right Bite, Smart Food Choices for Eating on the Go. Her advice has featured in a range of national media. She's appeared as a guest expert on radio and TV, including Channel 4, very popular channel over here, Channel 4 is Superfoods. So her nutrition clinic was recognized as Wow. Menopause Nutrition Clinic of the Year in the 2021 and 2022 London and Southeast Prestige Awards. She is also a Guardian Masterclass Tutor. You might have to tell us more about that. Um, And from 2011 to 2022, that's quite a long stretch, almost a decade, Jackie was the chair of the Institute for Optimum Nutrition, which is the renowned training provider for accredited nutritional therapy in the UK. She's a fellow of the British Association for Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine. So, wow, we're very um, impressed and pleased to have you here. Thank you. Welcome, Jackie. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you. That's a, quite a Thank bio. You. I'm, I'm very amazed. <laughs> I wish we had some yeah. of those. I wish we had some of those organizations in the United States. That maybe we do, but it's so fun to hear that you've been nominated on so many different levels. Yeah, we need to be nominated on those sort of levels, don't we? <laughs> But I, one of the things you said, Jackie, in your when we were going back and forth, was that you were keen to break the taboo about discussing the menopause. So she, mm-hmm. you launched your hugely popular diet and lifestyle podcast, The Happy Menopause, which was shortlisted for the 2022 International Women's Podcast Awards. So tell us more about your being keen to to break that taboo. And, and how you, you know, a little bit of your background, how you got into this. Well, uh, as a nutritionist, I've been working in the menopause space for, for well over 10 years, since long before it became fashionable here in the UK to be focusing on menopause. So I was talking about it before, you know, before it was the big thing. And what struck me forcibly when I was working with women in my nutrition clinic was the lack of understanding and the lack of awareness um, generally about whatever help, help there might be out there, but specifically from my perspective about the big role of diet and lifestyle uh, in helping to manage your symptoms, whether you're taking hormones or not. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I realized that women felt very alone. They weren't even talking to their friends about it because they were just too embarrassed. They didn't want to admit it, that they felt there was quite a, uh, a negative perception around that because it was about growing older. It was feeling that you were no longer valid or viable. And I just thought that was a tragedy because you know, we, we, in, in some cultures, in ancient cultures, a lot of them, you know, older women are, are celebrated as the wise women of the village. And yet somehow, uh, we midlife women weren't feeling that. So I just felt very strongly that, yes, of course, I could help people, women individually who came to my clinic, but I wanted to broaden that and, and reach out, uh, in a wider way. And the way I came up with was to launch the podcast in, in 2019, which was before podcasts really took off because during lockdown, they went crazy here. Everybody yeah. launched a podcast, Thank but you. fortunately I launched it a bit earlier. So I was able to get that traction and bring in a, you know, different expert guests to talk about different aspects of the, of the menopause. And in parallel to that, I wrote my book so that They've got a, a resource out there. If they can't afford to come to, you know, a private nutrition clinic, they can get the book um, instead. So it was just my way of, of trying to make the information as accessible as possible to as broad a range of women as possible. So, you know, Jackie, it's interesting that, you know, I come from um, the East Coast originally, uh, New York, and people are much more forthcoming about their symptoms and how they feel about things. And you move to the West Coast and people are a little bit more reticent. And I found that people didn't talk about things as much. So um, I feel the parallels that you're talking about in, in women are desperate. They're quiet. They're desperately seeking help, but they don't know where to go. And they're quietly yeah. crying in the corner in their home and they're and they're falling apart. They might look like they're together but i always think of you know the brits are having a stiff upper lip type of thing that we hear that you know they don't talk about things very much they keep things close to the cuff so how have you broken that open with women i mean how do you um make how do you make that space comfortable for them well i think first being very honest about it and open about it i mean i know i started to notice even just amongst my own friendship group that because i was working in this area i would just say things i'd say oh you know x y or z is happening and suddenly they'd look and say, well, I get that. Oh, and then suddenly they were daring to share and feeling better because of that. Mm -hmm. So I think having that openness is, is really important. But here in the UK, there was a bit of a, um, a sea change moment when, um, one of our major celebrities here, uh, called Davina McCall, did a documentary about the menopause. Mm. And it was very much her story, um, about the, how, what a terrible time she'd had and the big impact that uh, hormone replacement therapy or MHT, which I know it's often um, called as well, menopausal hormonal treatment. So oh, it's um, it made the headlines. Now, obviously, my perspective is we're looking at it from a diet and lifestyle angle, but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean I'm against hormonal therapy, far from it. Uh, there's room for everything. There's different things to suit different women. But what was important about this is that it blew open the doors, if you like. So although I and lots of other activists in the background, lots of health professionals have been working <laughs> away for many years, sometimes you need a celebrity to actually uh, oh. sort of broaden it. And so and a number of other celebrities then did other documentaries or wrote books. And although it was very much their private and personal memoir on this, because they're not health professionals, it's not for them to, to give advice. What it did do was allow women to dare to talk about it, allow women to dare to go and see their doctor, to dare to seek advice, to look into diet and lifestyle. And so that, that sort of happened, um, really around 2020 and through lockdown as well. And I think it was a game changer here in the UK because suddenly now there's a lot more openness about it. Women feel more confident to uh, talk about it in the workplace. Workplaces are being proactive about Amazing. supporting women. And that's, again, has made a big difference. Menopause is having a moment here as well. It's funny, back in the 80s, I believe it was, Candace will remember this as well. You might, of course, not know this, but um, Betty Ford was a, a, a first lady in our country and she was... Um, had breast cancer and suddenly yeah. the word breasts became uh, uttered in the in the in the world when it was never ever talked about before and then alcoholism was another one that came forward and so as people begin to like you said celebrities are willing to share their stories 
people are anxious to listen because they think, oh my God, if they have this, imagine with all their money and all their uh, access to healthcare, they have yeah. that problem. I have it as well. So it does make it very normalized, I think. And I think that's, I mean, menopause is having a moment worldwide, it seems like. Everything is menopause yeah. in our country as well. Like you said, Candace and I have been involved with menopause. I've been working with menopausal women since the 90s and switched over to the bioidentical hormone treatment in the early 2000s. But I mean, I've been working with women, but you know, women, again, we were in the closet about it. And now it's much more open. And I think the younger generation is much more willing to talk about things as well. Oh, yeah, I was, I was in a store yesterday in Summertown, Oxford, and was talking to this young girl who, um, Somehow she asked me what I did. So I told her and she said, oh, you work in hormones. And she started telling me about how she had the most painful, horrible periods. And she, you know, she just started talking about this. And they had all these books in that shop in particular about these different things. So I'm kind of, I was all ears because I'm thinking cross-culturally, I was thinking about talking with you today, how we have, we know that not all women experience the same symptoms of menopause. And certainly there are cross-cultural differences. You know, the famous, we know that in Japan, they never until recently had even a word for hot flashes. Yeah. Um, I think that's changed. But but in now that the 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 door has been blown open and women in, in the UK are talking about it, what, what are you finding are the common complaints and symptoms? Like in the US, we've got, I think it's over 75% of women talk about hot flashes and and night sweats and mood swings and and different things like that. But are, how is it different here? What is the average the, or the common complaint complaints? Well, I think there's a lot of similarity because you know it all comes down. I think in many ways to the Western diet and lifestyle, uh, the kind of things we eat, the kind of stresses we put ourselves under. Uh, and studies have shown, you know, that women in Asia following the uh, traditional diet of fermented. Um, Soya uh, do have much lower instances of uh, menopause symptoms, and it's thought that that's due to the, to the levels of phytoestrogen in their diet. We don't have that kind of diet by and large, so I think the, there's a quite a lot of crossover between the US and the UK in terms of the way we approach food, which means that yes, it is it's the hot flushes, but I would say that the bigger one and the what, but the one that isn't so recognised. Um, is the emotional and psychological side of things, the anxiety, the loss of confidence, the brain fog, which can be a killer. And again, women have started to be more confident to talk about hot flushes, but suddenly talking about anxiety, if you're a professional woman, thinking, well, are they going to judge me? Am I going to lose my job? Will I not get my promotion? So there's a lot of... <laughs> A lot of anxiety about anxiety because um, it's 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 now becoming you know much more recognised. It's one of the very early onset symptoms, usually before the hot flushes, because it's often around the progesterone um, uh, fluctuations, which usually kick in earlier. So you might still be you know in your early forties, you might still be having regular periods. So why would you think it's the menopause? And women in my nutrition clinic have frankly been relieved to learn it was the menopause because they they say things like, I thought it was early onset Alzheimer's. I thought I was going mad. Oh. I couldn't remember oh, things. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. it's tragic to hear this. And it's all through this lack of information and awareness. So as so I'm, you know, obviously a nurse practitioner in the US, so I'm I'm not as familiar with the healthcare system in the UK. So if a woman but you, let's say you or a friend of yours goes to a clinician in your in the UK and begins to express some of the is now okay with talking about this and she's saying I'm I'm losing my mind I I'm emotional I you know having brain fog I can't sleep blah 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 what kind of conversation is she likely to have with a clinician you know, what are, what are some of the things that are going to be offered in terms of like testing, treatment, what are some of her options going to be? I know you're a nutritionist and this is outside your scope, but as a woman in the UK, what are you seeing are the, yeah. are the options for women? Sure. Well, first of all, it's going to vary a lot. Um, the first port of call here in the UK wouldn't be the gynecologist. The gynecologist is usually someone you get referred on to, usually when there's some kind of problem, actually. It's the it's what we call the GP, the general practitioner or, or the family doctor, I believe it's known as in North America, um, that you would go to. And it's 
often a bit of a lottery as to what response you're going to get. There's been a, a lot of um, uh, confusion and anger and campaigning around the the level of training that that our, our GPs, our doctors have. And it's it can be the luck of the draw. So you might go in with your symptoms and you might be really well received and the way it works here is that if it's if you're over the age of 45, they won't do blood tests for the hormones because at that point you're almost certainly perimenopausal. And depending on the day of your blood test, you know, the hormones go up and down. It may or may not be significant. So you would get diagnosed via your symptoms. And if you were speaking to, you know, a sympathetic doctor who was, you know, well up in, in the latest advice around menopause, then yes, number of things would be put on the table. They'd talk to you a little bit about diet and lifestyle, but not much because they're not really trained in that. They'd certainly talk about the different options for, for hormonal therapy, whether it would be, um, tablets, patches, gels, or indeed perhaps the marina coil would also go on the table, depending on what was going on with the individual. So they'd look at all of those. Um, but what, but it isn't always that easy. I belong to a number of you know, private Facebook groups where women are expressing their frustration and saying, well, I went in with my list of symptoms and they just said, you're too young. It's not the menopause. <laughs> and she's saying, and I'm 48 and I'm going mad. Um, so that's really hard when that happens. Um, there have also been a number of instances where women have been inappropriately prescribed antidepressants when mm. perhaps a hormonal approach might have been more appropriate. So it's a bit of a lottery as to where you might end up. Um, and obviously within a, 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 a family practice, you could ask to see a different doctor next time. You could ask to see the one who was more interested in women's health. But even then, it will really depend on the individual doctor as to what sort of advice or support you might get. And then you see, if you're not getting what you need, um, uh, lots of women are spending a lot of money on going to see private uh, menopause specialist doctors. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yes, they'll get the hormonal treatment that they feel they need at that point, but at what cost? So yeah. it's, it's very, it's a very difficult situation and it will large, it will depend dramatically on where you live, who your doctor is and what's, what your experience is on any given day as to what might happen to you. Sounds like it mirrors the same situation as we have in the yeah. US, actually. It's not that different. You know, really, it depends on who you go to, how, and even our gynecologists and Candace and I have spoken about this in previous episodes about the lack of training, even for gynecologists. It's, it's everything moved after the Women's Health Initiative was published in 2002. The money moved, people moved towards making money in different ways of like delivering babies and doing surgeries. So all the emphasis moved away from hormones. We won't find people well-trained. So it sounds mm -hmm. like the same dilemma, but somebody like you with your resources now, with your toolbox, how do you take care? How do how do you approach women who come to you with those complaints? Because you have something to offer them that that's very uh, doable and very, um, what I want to say, it's at, you can seal it, see it, feel it, and then get results. Yeah. And if I could tag on, if I could tag on to that, do many women, is that sort of the a great area for women to fall back on because of this uncertainty in terms of getting any any help? You know, women are sort of, they go wanting because they can't find the help they need. So do you find that people like you are quite busy and, and filling a huge gap? Well, I think um, in general terms, quite often people come to me when they're at the end of their tether. Um, because they, they've tried everything else and they don't know quite what to do now. So they, they come and see, see whether diet and lifestyle can help. And, and that's really, you know, that's really sad to think it's that, you know, that, that we've have yeah. got, to, got to this point. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what I'd normally do as a first step is um, talk to them about getting the basics right. Because as you well know, Every woman has a completely different experience of menopause. You know, there's a good 20% who sail through it and wonder why we're always talking about it all the mm -hmm. time. And then there's the other 20% who have a really rough time and really need, you know, s s significant hormonal support. And in the middle is about 60% of women um, who have some symptoms, not all, varying degrees of severity at different times. And these are the women who've got a lot more choice, really. 
You know, they could go the diet and lifestyle route. They could go the hormone route. They could do the combination route. Because let's be clear, any kind of hormonal therapy will always work a lot better if you give it the tools to do the job and you give the body the nutrients that means it can activate the hormones in the correct way. Mm -hmm. So I always remind people that taking hormones isn't just a get out of jail free card. They'll work a lot better if you get the diet right too. So a lot of women sadly are still very worried that hangover from the study uh, that came out in, in 2002, which linked um, uh, HRT, hormonal therapy to, to breast cancer. That has sort of knocked out for a good 20 years people's confidence in using it. And although I know that that study's now largely been discredited, it's like so many of those um, urban myths that stick around, like, um, you know, I come from the low fat generation. When I was a young woman, we all had to stop eating fat because eating fat makes you fat, regardless of all the good things that fat does for you. And I struggle now with my clinic when I'm starting to say to him, well, you know, it'd be really good if you were eating some flax seeds, some nuts, um, getting those fats. Oh, but that will make me fat. And they have a mental block. So there's been a bit of a block against um, hormone therapy as well. So quite often women will come to me saying, I don't want to take it. I don't want to take it. And I say, well, look, okay, let's start. Let's start with diet and lifestyle and let's see how far we get. You might find that actually sorting out your diet and being careful about your stress levels and your sleep and all these things is sufficient for you to feel great and think, okay, well, I don't think I need it. But what we'll do is we'll go as far as we can. And then it might get to a point where we think, actually, we've done as much as we can through diet and lifestyle. And now it really would be sensible to go and have a chat with your doctor and see what you could, you know, what else, uh, what difference the hormones might be able to make to you. Because, and I think by that time, women are feeling more confident and more in control. When you're not in control, it's very stressful. When you don't really understand and you've got people playing on your fears and one doctor says cancer and the other doctor says no cancer, then it, it's really difficult to know what to do. What are the nutritional... Do you have a partner that you work with or any, any physicians or providers that you are comfortable sort of partnering with or no? Do you, or do you work alone? I, I refer people back to their, their family doctor because that's, that's what my code of practice says I have to do. But there will be other people I will refer them to. For example, one of the things that I, I work in, in partnership with, um, an excellent pelvic health physiotherapist, um, and women who are having trouble with, uh, vaginal issues. So, um, pelvic floor, weakness of pelvic floor, urinary stress incontinence, repeated mm -hmm. infections and so on. I will refer them across to get some proper support from a pelvic health physio who can do a lot more than many people might expect. And then, of course, they can also recommend to the doctor the uh, vaginal estrogen, which can often be a game changer for issues around vaginal dryness or uh, painful sex. And of course, the, the increased risk of, of thrush and, and UTIs. So um, I'm, I'll often work in, in that capacity, referring people on. Mm -hmm. But you Before you heard, what, what are the nutritional as the approaches that you use that you find are most successful? nutritional and lifestyle approaches that you find really can get people to a place where their perhaps their adrenals are strengthened and they have more energy to move on and and make the changes that they need to make what what sort of nutrients in particular i was listening to one of your podcasts about magnesium the uh -huh. wonders of that magical uh mineral that has something like 350 different functions um but, you know, things like that, we mention these things, the importance of B-complex, but we don't go into depth about them. What what do you find are the most effective? Well, before we wander into the wonderful world of micronutrients, I always think it's very important to get the basics of the macros right. Most women don't eat enough protein, for example. Human bodies made of protein. Everybody's cell is made of protein. Our bones, we know that's an issue as we get through menopause. They're made of protein. Our muscles, you can lose up to 40% of muscle mass by the time you've gone through menopause. The amino acids found in protein-rich foods are used by the body to create key neurotransmitters that regulate mood and memory and motivation and concentration, all things we tend to struggle with in midlife. So 
the first thing I want to do is I, I, I ask them to just really focus on the three key macronutrients, the proteins, the fats, and yes, the carbohydrate, even yes. though they're now demonized these days because <laughs> carbohydrates are a broad church and they include all that wonderful fiber, all those fruits and vegetables, all the whole grains and the pulses, which you know have a massive role in binding to old hormones and making sure they're excreted and not reabsorbed into the bloodstream and recirculating and causing imbalances right. so so i i talk about that and, and the, the approach i normally take is blood sugar balance because if you get your macros right then you balance your blood sugar and that's really important because mm -hmm. every time your blood sugar crashes you're releasing adrenaline and cortisol those pesky stress hormones and we all know that the more stressed we are the worse are menopause symptoms because it's interfering with the the body's plan B, the adrenal glands production of estrogen postmenopause to keep us you know on track. But yeah. if you're too stressed, the body will always prioritize the fight or flight response because it's the body's job to keep us alive. That's mm -hmm. its whole purpose. And so it will always focus on I mean, if we're stressed, it will produce those hormones and that's going to knock out the estrogen. So obviously thinking about what you can do within your life to regulate your schedule and take the pressure off yourself. But equally from a diet perspective, if you keep the blood sugar nice and stable and you're not having those crashes all the time, you're right. not producing even more stress hormones. So the, the rule that I always recommend to, to my people is protein and fiber with every meal and every snack. Keep that blood sugar balance because then without thinking hard, it all falls into place. And the great thing about protein-rich foods is that they are also a source of fat. So you're getting the fats you need as yeah, well. Um, and it's a, just a, a easy way for them to remember to do things without weighing food, counting calories, becoming obsessive at a time when you've already got enough on your mind. It's so funny. You are echoing exactly the words of Andrea Nakayama, who's a functional nutritionist here in the States. And you may have, you may know of her. She trains people all over the world in the functional nutrition world. And her mantra is exactly yours. Control your blood sugar. And her thing is with every snack or meal, protein, fat, and fiber. That's yeah. exactly what you just said. So it's so nice to hear that that same, that same message is being across the board. And I was just working with a gal yesterday who's very overweight and, and she brings all these low fat dressings to things. And I'm like, stop with the low fat stop with the low fat. They're full of sugar. They're full of terrible carbohydrates. This is that, again, like you said, I love that you said that carbohydrates are a broad church. They are. People think of carbs as being, you know, all the evil things in the world, as opposed to the plants. Plants are carbs. And, and all this keto stuff and all this, which has a, a very small, in my opinion, a small birth. You know, keto and paleo has sort of moved people away from this uh, carb, healthy, healthy plants and, and grains. I think the word carbs is not, we need to differentiate between complex carbs and simple carbs. But, but paleo doesn't allow grains and neither does keto. So grains are, are you know, that's the, so it's sort of a thing where people are following that path. They think mm -hmm. all those things, even good grains are bad for you. So, or beans yeah, yeah. even. So, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. So when you so then you sit down with them, do you actually give them um, sort of a map to follow in terms of like the foods that you know, like a Mediterranean type approach, or do you give them certain like lists of things that are like okay, when you're considering this, let's go to the grains, the whole grains as opposed to the white. I mean, what do you? How do you do that with your with your people? Well, I like to do it in a bit of a coaching way, really, because. It's not a matter of just getting the menopause diet out of the filing cabinet and saying, here you go, because right. um, everybody's different. So before they come and see me, the first thing they'll do is complete a health questionnaire with lots of background information about symptoms and medical history and so on. But importantly, also a food diary so I can get a feel for their food patterns, mm -hmm. the kind of mistakes they might be making, but also the kind of foods they like to eat and getting an idea of their day-to-day -day patterns. So I understand because... You know, if I'm dealing with a woman who's, I don't know, is a plumber, um, there's no point in me saying, well, you need to take a little box of hummus and carrot sticks for your <laughs> mid-afternoon snack because she'll be under someone's sink with a spanner. You know, that's just not going to work. So I, I need to think um, much more carefully about each individual. So what I tend to do is, first of all, understand them 
And then I think if they feel that, if they feel that I'm seeing their challenges and that I'm trying to help them meet them, then already they're, they're much more on board in terms of going with it and running with it. So what I tend to do, rather than create a meal plan, because meal plans, you know, we get bored. Yeah, we totally. get bored. I agree. Um, so I like to give some principles. And once I know what their basis is, the, the way they tend to eat, the kind of things they like in the morning, we just work around that. We think, okay, well, if that's how you like to eat, that's great. We'll just tweak it a little bit to make it blood sugar friendly. Do, you know, add in a few things. People are always amazed that I'm usually adding stuff in rather than taking stuff out, mm-hmm. um, trying mm-hmm. to make it more nutritious. And then all of a sudden, um, it becomes doable for them because women in midlife are so busy. They're so mm-hmm. darn busy, you know, and they've got so much on their plate. If they've got kids, it's probably either you know, going through puberty, which is a nightmare, hormone clashes <laughs> in the household, or maybe it's the empty nest syndrome. Maybe you're struggling to look after elderly parents, juggling oh, that with work. Things. Uh, money worries, relationship, you're questioning yourself, everything, everything changes. So if on top of it, I'm giving them more work, it doesn't work. I see it as my job to make it as simple as possible and as practical as possible within their, the context of their life. Mm. Do you try to um, get, do you, is your approach to the macronutrients the way that you like to see them get their supplements and their vitamins as well without putting them on a whole load of supplements? Well, what I do, one of the things I talk about to them, um, I usually have a graphic, is I talk about their plate, although I really like to talk about it as a meal because plates, you know, they've increased in size by about 30% in the last, yeah. in the last few decades. So, and we fill the place and then wonder why we're all getting fat because we're all overeating. Um, even when it's healthy, you know, you can still eat too much. Mm-hmm. So I talk about a quarter of the meal. I want a quarter of the meal to be protein. So that a fist size. I'm talking about main meals like lunch and, and dinner really fist size of protein if you're having starch a fist size of starch and then you've got half the half the plate half the meal at least for the vegetables so i ask them to do another quarter which is leafy greens now leafy greens so things like spinach kale rocket cabbage watercress um arugula i think you call rocket actually i was going to say rocket um, i love it i love it uh, and uh you to find that <laughs> <laughs> I knew what you meant though. <laughs> oh, I know. You're just so clever. Um, <laughs> and uh, the great thing about those is they're a one-stop shop for menopause-friendly nutrients because they're they're packed with magnesium. We'll come back to magnesium. I know you asked me about it. They're packed with iron. So if you're struggling with heavy periods in the perimenopause, then that's a good shout. They're an amazing source of vitamin C. They contain more calcium, twi- about twice as much per 100 grams as, as milk. Uh, they're full of vitamin K2, so for your bones. They've just got loads of stuff in. And then the final quarter would be any other vegetable. So not green. Uh, peppers, tomatoes, carrots. Um, uh, let's see what else. Um, eggplant. I was just searching for the uh, North American term there. Aubergine. You call it yeah. aubergine. Yeah. Um, mushrooms, onions, uh, cauliflower, whatever you like that's not green. And then you see... There may be a role for supplements and it's not something I discount, but first of all, let's get the basics in and make sure that you're at least giving your body as much as you can before we start to layer any supplements on top that you might need. And by doing that, again, it comes back to my principle of not having to think hard, not having to weigh food, just looking carefully and your fist, the portions, bingo. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, great. it's great. Very similar to, I think, the approach I, I use. That's funny. The same thing, with the fourth of the plate. I think that's such an, I think visuals are very important for people. In like yeah. you said, and, and, and the shrinking, like, you know, the plate sizes are massive. Mm. And so, like you said, they're like these monster dinner plates and, and people p- fill up their plates with this big thing of pasta. When you go to Italy, yeah. the pasta is this much, it's a small yeah. amount. It's yeah, very interesting. Absolutely. You know, you were talking about grains, and I thought it was funny before um, we you came on. Kyle was eating a, a lovely piece of sourdough bread mm. and raving about um, her sourdough peanut bread. Butter, peanut butter. I, and I find that um, with peanut butter, so perfect combination. Um, but here in Oxford, we have two or three bakeries right in this area of East Oxford with the best sourdough, and it's sort of like a, a a mania. Everybody's eating sourdough. And I wanted to yeah. ask about that because, you know, the whole issue about gluten, which was added to the food chain some time ago when they started hybridizing the wheat, and that's become 
such an issue. Um, people um, on gluten-free diets, I think that's an issue here. Uh, and I'm just wondering how sourdough kind of ameliorates that gluten problem by being fermented naturally. Uh, what is your view on that, just as a sidebar? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, genuine sourdough, and I'll come back to the word genuine, <laughs> Um, yeah, it really takes um, three days to make um, because you've got to refresh your starter. You've then you've got to create your leaven. Then you leave your leaven. Then you build up. You build it up over a period of time, refreshing it until you actually make your sourdough. And it's that lengthy fermentation process that actually pre-digests the the, the wheat and the gluten. Mm. And so there are some studies that have shown that for people with non-celiac related gluten sensitivity it can be much more digestible. Now, obviously, celiac disease is a different matter because that's an mm -hmm. autoimmune condition. But there are plenty of people who have non-celiac uh, gluten sensitivity. And that's quite interesting because all of a sudden, they, you know, they can have the bread and they, and, and they can digest it. But the problem we've got, certainly here in the UK, I don't know if it's different in North America, but um, sourdough is not a protected term here which means that um, anyone can call anything sourdough, in fact. Um, oh. And interestingly, an, uh, Witch Magazine, which is a consumer magazine here, um, named and shamed a load of supermarkets about four or five years ago now for uh, selling products that they called sourdough, but they'd actually added either yeast or vinegar Ugh. or yogurt, all of which spe speed up the process because they don't want to spend three days, time is money, <laughs> making their bread. And, uh, and so of course it wasn't proper sourdough. So that was very interesting. And it sort of blew, blew the doors open a little bit on, on this because a lot of people weren't aware. So when I'm talking about sourdough to people, you know, I, th there are one or two brands in the supermarket, but not many here that are, uh, genuine. But by and large, I'll say, you know, go to an artisan baker because they will either make sourdough or they won't, but they won't cheat. So it's great that where you are, you've got some proper bakers doing that. Yeah. And interestingly, Another thing that's coming through in the research into sourdough is actually the Im impact it has on blood sugar compared to other forms of bread. Mm. It, again, that, that, that lengthy fermentation process seems to make it a slower release carbohydrate, even when it's a white sourdough. So that's quite interesting as well. That's interesting. Mm. So um, one of the books that I read years ago, and I think Candace did as well, and you probably did too, Wheat Belly. It was written by a cardiologist in the United States. Oh, yes, about, I remember that book. Remember that book? And he talked about how um, our wheat in the U.S., as opposed to, I think, in Europe, and I'm not about, I don't know how about the U.K., is genetically engineered, and we have 50 to right. 500 times the amount of gluten as as the wheat in the Europe. So we hear... From our friends who are gluten sensitive, I can't eat the bread in the U.S., but when I go to Europe, I feel much better, especially like in France or Italy. So I don't know if that's the same issue you folks are facing in the U.K. or if you see as much gluten sensitivity as we have. We have a lot of people with gluten sensitive because yeah. they've overloaded. With Everyone's it. on gluten-free, it seems. And do you see that in you in the UK as much? Do you think, or it, not so? Yeah, I think it's on the rise for sure. Um, compared to about 15, 20 years ago, I think it's significantly different. Um, there's much more uh, in the way of either wheat or gluten sensitivities now. People just struggling with those grains um, mm -hmm. and the proteins in those grains. And um, about ooh, 20 or so years ago, uh, celiac people with celiac disease were able to get um, gluten-free products on the NHS, so they get a prescription for them. Um, oh, wow. But that's all changed oh, <laughs> because there are just too many, just too many now. Mm -hmm. uh, I know. You know. Also, when I was living in London back in this, while well, I was there during the eighties and the nineties, um, I had my children in in London, in England, and um, was raising them there and. And was not into the hormone thing then. I was a health educator. I was actually working at Witch Magazine. Um, oh. That was quite the heady days working for them. I stayed up all night, pulled all-nighters, and drank a lot of caffeine to meet my deadlines. But Which I think is when I went into early menopause because I was so stressed. But oh, later, I realized when I got into the hormonal thing, how lucky it was that I was living in England where they didn't allow hormones to be injected into the food. Yeah. 
I mean, we've had a huge, we have a huge issue with that in the States that, and this isn't a piece, you know, an educational piece mm-hmm. that we have to mm-hmm. hammer in all the time. This whole discussion about endocrine disruptors and hormone, you know, uh, chemicals that mimic hormones yeah. and them being injected into our beef and our chicken and our milk dairy dairy is loaded and you know when you so what is your what what is your perspective on all of that and is it still the case that the uk forbids that kind of it's a massive worry it's a massive worry it's a massive worry um we've always had you know pretty um stringent guidelines in relation to that but things have changed since Brexit because we were obviously in partnership with the European Union and across the board, there were an awful lot of very careful guidelines around food safety. And several of those now have been, um, uh, those laws have been repealed so that we are not in the ah. same situation. Uh-huh. And of course, you know, our government is looking for trade deals. And if you're looking for trade deals for people who want to be bringing in foods that they couldn't bring in before because it was against our guidelines. So there's a lot of worry at the moment, um, generally sort of in the food industry about where this is going to be taking us. And I, I really hope and pray that we don't end up in that situation. But the trouble is, you know, food is a political issue. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so when you work with women on these issues and you work with dietary changes, I know everybody is absolutely very different. And you said there was like 40% of women were sort of in the middle. And I totally agree with that, by the way. Um, how effective are you seeing the dietary changes? How effective are they in, in affecting change in terms of decreasing symptoms and making people feel better? What are you seeing? And, and then when you, when you, and again, my concern is, and I know this is outside your, um, scope is that we'd still have to deal with the increased risk of osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease that comes with waning hormones if we don't replace Mm -hmm. bioidentical hormones how are you addressing some of those issues for women who don't want hormones it's a great question of course there are women who might want to but can't because of their medical history so it's um it is a, a tricky one. First of all, I would say it's it's incredibly effective in a lot of cases. I think pe- women immediately feel the benefit of eating more protein. They feel right. stronger. They, they have more energy. Yeah. And when you have more energy, everything suddenly becomes more manageable, doesn't it? Um, Balance blood sugar, right. Yeah, absolutely. We work on sleep because sleep is really disrupted during menopause. Obviously, the classic hot flushes, night sweats are a problem. But even without that, all the just general hormonal turmoil can often mean that even if you're not getting the sweats, you're not sleeping like you used to. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the the sort of I, I look back at my 20s and think, Gosh, I, you know, I could have been, if I left alone, I could sleep till 11 and that would just never happen <laughs> never, now. No way, right? No, no way. Um, so one of the things we look at is, is magnesium. Magnesium calms the nervous system. It, it regulates the body's response to stress and really helps you to feel better equipped to cope with the challenges of daily life. So it's a big one. And obviously it's in those leafy greens, but it is something I would also look at supplementing separately if it was appropriate, because for, for sleep in particular, something like magnesium glycinate, mm-hmm. um, you know, a couple of hundred grams before bed, uh, milligrams, sorry, a couple of hundred milligrams before bed um, could make, uh, you know, a big difference. And once again, if you get the sleep right, I was just speaking to uh, one of my clients last week who said to me, oh, Jackie, the last five days I have slept. I have slept through and I just feel completely different. So then suddenly, because of course the hormones are messing with your head and doing all sorts of things, but then so is the lack of sleep. So if you get the lack of sleep dealt with, then the hormone stuff might be happening, but not quite so much. It might be much more manageable. So really focusing on on stress management and sleep is something I find incredibly effective. And then I, not so popular this one, but I look at alcohol and caffeine because, um, you know, you think, well, I, I'm not a heavy drinker, they say, but then they're having something every day and that might not be fine. Um, but wine in particular is an absolute killer when it comes to hot flushes. And there's a, a real sense of the sort of 50 something women here, um, a bit of an epidemic of, you know, uh, middle aged, middle class people just having wine every day and thinking, well, it's all very civilized, but actually 
come off that for a few weeks and all of a sudden, you know, the hot flushes, it, it can make a massive difference. Mm-hmm. And the sleep is definitely improved. And I also ask them to audit their caffeine intake because not saying you can't ever have your cup of coffee or your cup of tea if that's a big thing for you. But for most people, it's the one in the morning that's the big one. It doesn't need to be throughout the day. And women often don't realize that their ability to metabolize caffeine changes. Mm-hmm. And they say, but I've always had a cup of tea after my my evening meal. I think, yes, but your ability to activate the enzyme that breaks down the um, uh, caffeine in the liver it's all going to change now. So you need to audit. Maybe your cutoff point's 4 p.m. Maybe it's 11 a.m. Um, small things like that can make a very big difference because if you're accumulating caffeine in the liver, you're going to be feeling jittery and anxious and overwrought and you're not going to sleep. And we're all blaming the menopause. Well, you know, in a roundabout way, it could be menopause, but maybe it's just the menopause has affected your ability to metabolize caffeine. So there are lots of things we can look at like that. Um, yeah. Also, you know, running blood tests, making sure that their vitamin D is up to scratch yes. and, and touching on your question around um, osteoporosis. Well, that's incredibly important, of course, because there's a lot of fuss about calcium, but no point in stuffing yourself with calcium tablets if your vitamin D is low, because yeah. you'll just end up with calcium deposits in places you don't want them, which will be painful and problematic. So I, I recommend everybody's taking vitamin D. I'd look at, you know, a thousand international units a day would be a, a, a regular maintenance dose. Um, and then, of course, you know, you're able to absorb the calcium that, that you're eating. And I would also at this point recommend, um, Weight-bearing exercise, working with weights, um, impact work. So it might be running, it might be dancing, it might be racket sports, it might be working with the weights in the gym, but putting the pressure on those bones. Because if you are not able to take HRT or if you choose not to, then the hidden longer-term um, impacts of the menopause, you need to take uh, action. You need to think about your bones. You need to think about your heart. You know, we midlife women, we tend to move to the mat we do a lot of Pilates and yoga. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of yoga, um, of both of them. They're both great in their way. But you need also to move the heart muscle. So mm-hmm. what kind of vascular work are you doing to keep the heart fit and well? Because your risk of coronary heart disease is now the same as a man's when it wasn't before with the protective effects of the estrogen. Um, what weight-bearing exercise are you doing? So mixing it up a bit with exercise. And often it's just a matter of sharing that information because they just didn't know. Exactly. Um, and when they know, well, okay, of course I'll do it. But it's yeah. about it's about the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, such a vicious cycle when people can't sleep. They drink more coffee. Um, everyone's on their computers late at night. I mean, not everyone, but so many women uh, that I ask, are you on your computer, your laptop? Are you, we're watching all this great streaming television later on in the evening. Um, we're playing words with friends. That's certainly a disruptor. <laughs> certainly a disruptor of um, melatonin, the master sleep hormone. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and talking about magnesium for sleep, how many women are eating those leafy greens that are so we're all we're also deficient in these <clears throat> in these nutrients. So bringing in the macronutrients, as you say, and then and, and I think it's interesting that you do sort of say women need a D supplement, a D3 mm-hmm. supplement, because it's hard to get enough D in our nutrition, isn't it? It's in mushrooms. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's tiny amounts. I, I think we should we should recognize that vitamin d behaves a lot more like a hormone than a nutrient right you know, are, you always, are, you, are you also talking about vitamin k2 when you talk about d or no i do yeah okay. yeah in fact i i, I there's a, a very nice spray that we get here in the uk by a company called better you and they do a combo of d and k2 and it's nice i like i like a spray because you get very bored taking pills don't you it's all very dull um sprays oh, a bit different a spray Not absorption can you yeah. comment on the importance of K2 with D on from your background? Well, it it is it's basically they the you're not going to absorb the one without the other. Okay. So you need you really need they're both um what what we would call uh, fat soluble vitamins, but they work together. So mm-hmm. you can have lots of vitamin D, but if your K2 is low, then you're not going to be benefiting from right. the vitamin D as effectively, essentially. So yeah. having that combination is very important. And I'd normally say to a woman, because people want the quick fix, say, well, if you're looking for bone support, 
don't just do calcium or just do vitamin D. You can get very decent bone complexes that have got a bit of everything in. They've got the boron, they've got the D3, they've got the calcium, they've got the vitamin C, they've got the K2, and then it's all there together working in synergy because that's how nutrients are meant to be. I agree. agree. So tell me, talk a little bit about, I I love this expression that you have the happy menopause. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how you came up with that idea? I love that. And, and your emphasis uh, upon positivity. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that yeah, no. I think it would be fun for us all to discuss what we consider the happy menopause, but would love to hear your perspective, how you came up with that. Well, I got a bit frustrated with all these memoirs that were coming out about how terrible it is and how awful it is. And of course, the reviews and the, 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 the media were picking headlines and making it all sound really dreadful. And women were getting right. scared. And I just thought, well, stop, it's enough already with the scaremongering and this sense of your life is over. It's not good enough. You know, we're still very young. You, If you think about what your, your parents, what your mum looked like at the age you are now, she looked a lot older. I, I, I bet she did. I don't know for sure, but I bet she did because I know oh, my yeah. mum. Um, you know, they dressed older, they thought older, they didn't exercise like we did. So, you know, but women now in their 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, they are vibrant, positive, wonderful beings with, you know, possibly another 50 years ahead of them. And how can you possibly sort of write yourself off at this point and say, well, oh, well, it's all downhill from now on. It's the end of my fertile years yeah. and no one's <laughs> an attractive and I'll never have Probably sex again. <laughs> and, and it's just like see it as a door opening my god your periods have stopped you don't need to worry about contraception anymore yay for that um yeah. but you know that i know as a woman in my 50s i'm 57 that, that um well, I look at your skin beautiful oh thank you you're welcome <laughs> no, it's all that vitamin c okay i'm 70 and candace is 75 but look at you look amazing yeah. women and this is because you know of course, you're looking after yourself and you're doing all the right things right. too, but you've also got the positivity, the enjoyment, the sense of this is a door opening to a whole new way of being. And that's what the happy menopause for me is. So mm. I, I thought it was really important not just to sort of have a sort of doom and gloom title for the podcast and the book, which uh, just fed into that sense of negativity with a, you know, once women are through menopause, they're not really very useful or interesting anymore because it's rubbish. Yeah. Have you ever listened to uh, Jane Fonda did a wonderful piece on a TED talk here called The Third Act? And she talked about how women, you know, we have the first act is all about growing up and discovering who we are. The second act is your career, your family building, all the things that women do. And your third act is really a time to, for yourself, to give to the world, to grow spiritually. And to become something bigger than what you've ever become before, because now you're you're freed from all the other things that you're worried about before. And I think that's I think that's the freedom of, of menopause. And just like you were saying, you're not having periods anymore. You're not worrying about being fertile. You're not worrying about a lot of the things that we used to worry about. You you change you change your focus completely. I love the positivity yeah. of this. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right, that sense of the third age. And, you know, with, with the drop in the reproductive hormones, you know, those they've been driving our choices and our priorities for, you know, ever since puberty. And we women are hardwired to nurture. And then suddenly having that headspace, that sense of, well, well I can I can focus on me and what I want to do with my life and how I'm going to do differently. So important. My daughter's so cute. She'll call me up and say, what are you doing today, mom? And I'll tell her what I've done. I play tennis. I'm going shopping. I'm getting a pedicure. I'm, I'm volunteering. She goes, I want your life because I'm ready to retire. And I, we just laugh about it because it's like, and she always says, mom, you worked your whole life and I'm sure you have too. And it's funny if you are lucky enough to be healthy enough because you've done the work when you're younger, then you get to enjoy this time as opposed yeah. to, you know, we all know the whole term lifespan versus health span. And if, if you feel good, you don't feel old. That's the difference. Yeah. yeah. You know, and this is vital information really because women didn't live much past menopause right. 50 years ago. And this third act, we are actually living another third of our lives. I mean, my mother died in her 90s. I think Kyle's did. I don't know about your mom. 
Jackie, but you know, we are living another third of our lives and we can't just be running on empty here. We have to, you know, we have to take steps. I think what's the the conversation too, just to backtrack a little bit about normalizing blood sugar and balancing all of that, all of the things we've been talking about, the nutrition, the stress management, the positivity Mm -hmm. is really adrenal support in the end. And we have to, as you said, plan B, the adrenals are all we've got once we are in menopause, they run the show. They're making the hormones. So especially for women who can't use uh, hormone replenishment, or any sort of therapy, you've got to take extra, extra ten, tender, loving care of those adrenal glands, and that means stress management and self care, and yeah. and and no longer do we need to be notorious for taking care of everyone but ourselves. It's time for us. So yeah, yeah and like Candace does a lot of hormone testing, as do I, and I see a ton of depletion of DHEA at very young ages, which is so concerning yeah. because yeah. that means those people are really running on empty and and you don't get that back and so it's kind of like this whole attention to lifestyle it it, it, i agree with you i'm I'm, we are both candace and i and it sounds like you are two huge proponents of women who can taking bioidentical hormones but without the the basis the foundation of a good diet and a good lifestyle it's really for naught. I always used to tell yeah. my patients, I can make you feel better. I can, I guarantee I can make you feel better, but it's up to you to maintain that better by changing your yeah. lifestyle. You yeah. have to, you know, it's, it's a partnership. It's Absolutely. a whole, it's a very holistic um, approach. So, I mean, I, I would say that the happy menopause, if we could just sort of as a wrap up, what, how would you, what is the happy menopause for you, Jackie? I would say for me, it, uh, it is just sort of that what Kyle was talking about, what you were talking about, not having these overweening concerns about everyone else. I have to say I'm still working, though, and that's probably because the knowledge that we we three have may always we three may always be working. But do we consider it work? I think no. we consider it, you know, it's it's. um it's sort of our legacy. We're passing on the knowledge and it's purposeful and it's fulfilling. And that's where I'm at. I'm just looking for purpose and fulfillment and to fill my days with, you know, if it means watching red foxes chase each other down the riverbank and then doing a little work in the morning and having a cup of tea in the afternoon and, you know, reading a good book, it's simple. Doing some watercolor sketching for me, it's been a creative experience too. Finally, picking up some paintbrushes and doing something creative for the first time in my life. So for me, that's a happy menopause. It's funny. I'm sitting here in my condo in downtown Portland, and I have a little balcony, and I have a hummingbird feeder, and I have a little bird feeder. And while we've been sitting here recording this podcast, my eyes keep moving up. There, maybe you've watched me, but I had nine birds sitting on one bird feeder, and I have wow. this hummingbird that's going between my geraniums, which are still blooming in November, by the way, because it's been so wild, yeah. and yeah. jumping back and forth. And I think. That's my happy menopause is having the time for the first time in my life to do what I want to do each day. I wake up, I, I am still doing consults. I do a ton of volunteer work, but it's all on my terms now. Whereas when I was yeah. young, I, working in a hospital as a nurse, running, raising two kids, you know, running, running, going to graduate school, all those things. I was just always like my adrenals. I shot them. I shot them through a full of holes. So we all, we all speak from experience. I mean, we all sound like we know what we're doing, but it's all through hard knocks that we've come here, I believe. And having menopause is, is finding that, that tip, that tipping point, that balancing point that of, okay, I can eat well. I can drink enough not to feel terrible the next day. I can exercise all I want. I can help the world, but I wake up and I feel good because of those choices I make each day. And I get to be with people I love. And, and I think that's it is, it's having this um, veneration and gratitude for getting here and still feeling good at this age for me. That's my happy menopause. Yeah. Give us your philosophy, Jackie, for, for a, a lovely ending here to this lovely interview with you. Thanks so much. I think that the, the the greatest blessing really is is that of time, that you have more time for yourself. And mm-hmm. I think if you're able to create that, that's where the happiness comes from. Because suddenly you you can make choices. You can think, well, actually this afternoon, I'm going to go for a walk by the lake because I'm 
I think that's what I need. And being able to make those choices and thinking, actually, I don't really want to do that thing. I'm going to say no instead of always saying yes because you're a people pleaser. I think it's having that confidence in yourself to know what's right for you and not feeling overloaded, being able to breathe, being able to suddenly think, as you were with your painting, suddenly take that up or think, do you know what? I've always dreamt of living by the sea. I'm going to look into that. I might just move and go and live by the sea because that's <laughs> what I want my next bit to be. You know, it's just that sense of of having options, having choice and having the time and headspace to make it happen, which in the earlier years we simply didn't. And really making the most of it so that, you know, yes, you get the diet right. Yes, you get the exercise right because that's those are the building blocks. But then you think about, your time, if you can make time for yourself, then everything else will fall into place and it really will be that happy menopause. I love that. Well, Jackie, it has been such a joy getting to know you today and knowing that you're doing the great work in the UK because before today, I didn't know. I didn't know what, what was available for women over there. It's just so nice to have you as that guiding light for women. It sounds like you touch a lot of people's lives with the work that you've done. So we appreciate having you as a guest today. Yes, thanks so much. And ladies, take time not to meet others' expectations, but your own and move into the happy menopause. It can be done. Yes, thanks, and I, I, love, I love the idea that you can say no. I think that is the biggest thing. Like you said, we people pleasers are so afraid to say no. It's okay to say no to something else and say yes to you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved chatting to you. Oh, it's been lovely. Thank you so much. Here we are at the end of this WTF, Woman Talking Frankly, podcast episode. In signing off, we want you to remember that what you are feeling is not all in your head. And that you have so many options to choose from to get you back to balanced living. Until next time, be well. And remember, if you want a great life, you need to ask great questions. Be courageous. Ask for what you need. With love, Kyle and Candace.